Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going, to, we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Peter today. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And today's text, today's scripture reading, if you will, has to do with building up the church. The title of my message today is Divine Bodybuilding. Divine Bodybuilding. You'll notice some uh, some strong folks up there showing off their muscles. You know, bodybuilding. You know, when we think of bodybuilding in our culture today, who comes to mind when you think of bodybuilding? Shout it out, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? We got Arnold. We got Rambo up there. You know, we got big guys. You know. I, I have a few others that I think of. I also think of Tom Bennett, our worship director, and I think of Bob Wilkin, our, our missionary. You know, these are people that come to my mind as well as, you know, Tom, you look a little scrawny up there, but, but Bob is looking pretty good. You know, bodybuilding, folks, is, is, is important. Our physical condition is important. And so also, is the condition of our church family. And today as we read 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to see... You can go to the next slide if you'd like. (laughs) We're going to see how important it is to build up the body of Christ. You know, Peter doesn't use the term church in 1 Peter, but he does talk a lot about the church. And in particular, our text today, as we read 1 Peter chapter 4, is going to be instructing us on how to interact with our fellow believers in the church. Let's take a look. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. We'll read it one time through, and then we'll examine God's Word and pull from it good truth. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. But the end, Peter says, of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful or sober in your prayers. And above all things... Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we ask right now just a special anointing of Your Spirit upon this time of study in Your Word. Father, Your Word is truth. We thank You for it. Lord, we pray now that Your Holy Spirit would help us to understand it and to apply it to our very lives. Lord, the truth today that we are learning is important for the church. It's important for the believers. And I pray, Father, that as we read what Peter has to say to us by inspiration of the Spirit, that this church would be built up, that we would experience bodybuilding, Father, in a spiritual way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, verse 7. Take a look at it again. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful or sober in your prayers. 
You'll notice the, the sign up there, that guy holding up his Bible with the, the end is near sign. How many of you have seen someone like that on a street corner before? Okay, many of us have. Uh, some of us probably shy away from those folks, or maybe we go up and want to talk to them. I don't know. I, I know one thing is clear. When I see somebody holding up a sign such as that, it does make me think about the end, doesn't it? The purpose of that person holding up that sign is to somehow, some way, encourage the person reading that sign to consider their eternal destiny. For good or for bad, whatever this guy's inclination might be in, in holding up this sign, whatever his motivation is, one thing it definitely does when you read it is it causes you to think, what is in store for me at the end? What is in store for me at the end? And so when Peter begins verse 7 by saying the end of all things is at hand, by that he means for us to to begin to think, what's in store for me at the end? Now two verses prior to verse 7, Peter had been speaking of the judgment of God. He told us in verse 5 to take heart when the Gentiles revile and persecute you because why? They will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But not only that, Peter goes on to say in verse 6, just one verse prior, that the judgment of God is coming and it is sorely in contrast to the judgment of men on earth. While the Roman culture around the believers in Asia Minor, to whom Peter was writing, while the Roman culture around them evaluated and judged them according to fleshly means, Peter says in verse 6 that God will evaluate you, evaluate you from a vastly different perspective. He will evaluate you from a spiritual perspective. While Romans 4, while 4, chapter 4 verse 4 tells us that the Roman culture around them thought it was strange that these Christians would not run with them in rampant sin, God is desiring to ultimately vindicate them for their life of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. And so you see Peter is continuing the theme, the judgment of God is coming. Be ready for it. Verse 7, the end is near. Consider your eternal fate. But not simply whether or not you're going to get into the pearly gates of heaven, if you will. But moreover, what's in store for you when you get there? In light of the fact that the end is near, in light of the fact that the judgment of God is near, Peter says, be serious and watchful or sober in your prayers. Now these phrases are meant to be distinguished. The first, be serious. It means Think sensibly. Think rightly. Be serious. Be of sound judgment as God's judgment draws near. While the culture around them was running in a flood of dissipation, chapter 4, verse 3, Peter wants his audience to be sober-minded and to think rightly, to be on their toes. And secondly, he says, be watchful in your prayers. Now, the word watchful there, we're we're looking at the New King James Version up on the screen. The word watchful there is, to put it uh, plainly, is a little bit misleading. 
Uh, there's another Greek term for the word watchful that would that is elsewhere used in First Peter, in fact, in First Peter chapter five, verse eight. But in particular, the word watchful here is actually best translated to mean sober or self-controlled. For our purposes today, I want to focus on that word sober or self-controlled as a better translation, if you will. And the reason why I'm making that the translation is because that same Greek word is translated sober in chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 5, verse 8. And so it's best in chapter 4, verse 7, to also translate it as sober. Be sober in your prayers. Now, in chapter 1, verse 13, if you were to turn there, Peter uses the verb sober to describe the attitude that believers should have as they set their hope fully on the coming salvation. Their coming vindication, if you will, in Christ for a life well lived in the midst of persecution. The sober ones, according to Peter, are those who seek first the kingdom of God. They lay aside the worries of this earth. The sober ones are those who have been faithful, Peter would say in chapter 1, verse 13, and are now anticipating the reward that lies ahead for them in Christ. From this, we can determine that being sober means anticipating the reward that lies ahead for a life of faithfulness to God. Now, in chapter 5, verse 8, I want to show this text. Take a look at chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Notice how he uses the term sober there. He says this, Be sober, be vigilant, which is the word for watchful, by the way, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the, sufferings, that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So here we see that sober, that term there, also includes resisting the temptations of the adversary. It means resisting sin, being steadfast in faith. Now, why do I give us all this background on the word sober? Because I believe that Peter is using the term in chapter 4, verse 7, to encompass what he's meant by it in chapter 1, 13, and chapter 5, verse 8. To be sober in prayer is twofold, is one, to be anticipating the reward that lies ahead for a life of faithfulness to God, according to 1.13, and two, it is to be resisting sin and being steadfast in faith. This is how Peter uses the term sober. And when he says be sober in prayer, he says this is the attitude that you're to take with you to prayer, anticipating the reward of God. Resisting sin, being steadfast in faith. Now, I want to make it clear that this twofold understanding of being sober in prayer is not to be understood merely individualistically. It is not to be understood from strictly an individualistic perspective. In other words, we're not to assume that Peter means to say, pray for your own ability to resist sin and continue in faithful anticipation of God's reward. It's not only that. It's more than that. In light of the entire epistle, Peter is very communally minded. He's very mutually minded. And the commands that will follow in verses 8 to 11 that we'll get to shortly 
we're going to see that Peter says that we are to pray and, and, and pray for resistance of sin and to be steadfast in faith for all of us, not just our own, but for the community within the church. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says that your conduct needs to be so honorable that the Gentiles around you will glorify God at the end of the age. He says, by your conduct, let it be so honorable that all those around you see it, even the pagans, even those who are not believers, even those not within the church, that they'll see that conduct and they'll glorify God. In chapter 3, verse 1, he tells wives, let your conduct be so gracious, so filled with love toward even an unbelieving husband, that he might see your quiet, good conduct, your honorable conduct, and convert to Christ. You see, Peter, folks, is outward-minded. He's communally-minded. He's mindful of the fact that a prayer for the faithfulness of oneself, a prayer for the faithfulness of oneself to resist sin and to be steadfast in the faith is also a prayer for the community. Because when I'm resisting sin, and when I am steadfast in faith, the Gentiles see it and glorify God. When wives are praying for the resistance of sin, and when wives are praying that they would be steadfast in faith, their husbands, the unbelieving ones, see it and perhaps convert to Christ. So when Peter says, be sober in your prayers, it's not just a prayer for yourself. It's a prayer that benefits all, both in and outside the church. Pray for your own conduct, that it might be unswervingly faithful. And pray for the faithfulness of others, that your fellow believers may stand strong in the midst of trial and persecution. That they might remain focused on the prize that awaits them. Verse 8, Peter says this, And above all things... Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, he, he especially sets apart verse 8 from the rest of the text here. He says, above all things, have fervent love. This is a, a, a way by which Peter is saying, this is what governs all of what I'm telling you in this section of Scripture. Above all things, the most important is that you would express fervent love for one another. The word fervent there means zealous or earnest. Now take note of the word love. In our culture today, you know, we use the word love uh, rather hastily, in a sense. You know, when I, we use it in different senses. When I say to you that I love my wife, now you all know immediately what that means. You know that I have deep, heartfelt emotion and care for my wife. I have a deep, inner longing to be with her and to care for her when I say I love my wife. On the other hand, when I say I love this piece of gum in my mouth, you don't automatically assume that what I mean by that is I have deep, inner emotions and longings for the gum that resides in my mouth. Or do you? We understand when I say I love this gum in my mouth, it means to say 
wow, this gum is really good. I really like it. It's, it's, it's got a good taste to it. I love this gum. But we would never understand it to mean I have deep, heartfelt emotions for the gum in my mouth. That would be a different kind of love. Well, in Greek, the word love has three different terms. In Greek, there are three different primary words used to translate the word love. And each word for love expresses a different kind of love. The word love that you see behind me in yellow is the Greek word agape. And it's the highest form of love in the Greek language. Agape love is a sacrificial kind of love. The one claiming this love would do anything for the person to whom it was directed. In fact, it was such a high form of love that you might recall Peter refusing to use this word in John 21 when Jesus asked him, Do you love me? Peter's response was, Well, I love you, Jesus, but it's not the agape love. It's the phileo love or a brotherly kind of love. Peter was reticent to use this word in John 21 when Peter asked him if he agape loved him. Peter now is 35 years removed from that moment, that discourse with Jesus. He's matured in his faith and has come to recognize the tremendous importance of exhibiting agape love. You know, it is not by happenstance that Peter writes this in his next epistle. I want you to take a look closely at this. Look at what he says in 2 Peter 1, 5-7. He says, Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, the noun for phileo, the brotherly kind of love, and to brotherly kindness love, the noun form of the Greek verb agape. Friends, Peter in 2 Peter 1, 5-7, which by the way is, is probably one of the best internal evidences that demonstrate that 2 Peter was in fact written by Peter, demonstrates that Peter recognized how important it is not just to love someone from a brotherly kind of love, but to go beyond that. To go to agape love. To love one another fervently, sacrificially, from the deepest parts of our soul. Brotherly kindness, brotherly love, Peter says, is not enough. It's not enough. You know, I... I, I was thinking about this a lot in in verse 8, in my own life, really. I know that um, in my own life, I think one of the things that I have struggled with the most is trusting people. I I have a difficult time trusting people. There have been instances in my life, if I were to share with you, uh, ways in which my, my trust was burned with someone else. They, they betrayed me in one way, shape, or form. And I lost trust in them. And so as a result of that in my life, I have realized how quick I am to show phileo love, brotherly kindness kind of love, and yet how slow I sometimes am to show agape love, a sacrificial kind of love. A love that says, I love you no matter what. I don't know if you can resonate with that. But I think that many of us today are content with phileo love. 
What I mean by that is, many of us today are content with loving others in a brotherly kind of way only. Many of us are content to, as we interact with our friends at church, as we interact with our family, as we interact with those around us, we're content to just phileo love them. And we assume that we're doing what God intends for us to do. Friends, phileo love is not enough. Peter says, have fervent, agape love. It is not enough to love each other as brothers. It's not enough. If you're to love the people in this church, if you're to love your spouse, if you're to love anyone, Peter, and the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to agape love them, to sacrificially love them, to treat everyone as if they deserve the highest form of love from you. Fervent love. I know that's a challenge in my own life. And I'd, ask, I'd urge you to consider, do you agape love people? Or are you content with just a, a brotherly kind of love? What might happen in this church if we were to show agape love to one another? Peter says in the conclusion of verse 8, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's um, an interesting statement. It's put in quotes in the New King James. You're not going to find it in quotes in any other Bible translation. Um, It's put in quotes because the translators of the New King James uh, made the... Uh, decision that this phrase was based on another verse in the Old Testament. I'm not, in, I'm not entirely sure it is. It's a little bit of a loose translation of a passage in Proverbs 10. You can take a look at that on your own if you'd like. I'm not so sure this is a quotation. But nevertheless, the, the phrase itself is interesting and worth study. What does Peter mean by the word cover here? Does he mean that human love has the capacity to atone for sins? In a word, no. That's not what he means. But what does he mean by the word cover? The word cover there can mean sweep over. It can mean hide or veil. And friends, when you approach difficult sections of Scripture such as this one, what does it mean that that, that love covers sins? It's best to stay within the context of the book to look for your answer. And if you look just a little bit earlier, in chapters 1 and 2 of this very verse, of this very chapter, you'll see Peter discussing sin again. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He's talking about Christ, and then he's talking about us. He says, now therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves, put on the same mind. For he, and he's speaking generally here, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now we learned this a couple weeks ago as we were studying through this passage. If we put on the mind of Christ, we understood that that will lead to a life in which sin is diminished. In which sin is effectually ceasing in our lives. I would argue that Peter is saying here that when he says love covers a multitude of sins, it's in the same sense that he means by chapter 4, verse 2. If we put on the mind of Christ, chapter 4, verse 1, 
if we have fervent love for each other, chapter 4, verse 8, then sin will be diminished. Sin will cease. Sin will go to the wayside, if you will. So also sin will be covered. Sin will be squelched. Sin will lose its power over us. When Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, he particularly means human love toward one another. And thus we can't translate it as atone for sins. That is something only God can do through Jesus Christ, through the death on the cross in which sins were atoned for. But in our own lives, when we show agape love to each other, sin is covered. Sin is squelched. It is put down. It diminishes. It ceases. Verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now you're probably starting to notice by now these are really short, pithy phrases that Peter is using. But really, folks, they're all interconnected. For what is hospitality if it is not agape sacrificial love? What is hospitality if it is not a sacrificial kind of love. It takes work to be hospitable. It takes effort. We know what the word means. It doesn't take any any genius to translate it. It means opening up your home to others. Showing hospitality. Letting others come in and serving them. Being with them. Showing them love and care in your home. This word is used three times in all the New Testament. Interestingly enough, the other two times outside of this instance, it's used by way of a qualification for elders, overseers, and bishops in the church. It starts with the leadership, Peter says, uh, the Bible says, and Peter also adds, it continues with all of us. The overseers of the church are to be hospitable. I am called, my wife and I are called to open up our home. The elders and their wives are called by God to open up their home and be hospitable. And so also all of us are. You know, I think of the salt and pepper dinners that we just had. Many of you opened up your homes. And I got to say, I really, really deeply appreciate that. Because when you open up your home and you let families come in and you serve them dinner and you care for them around the table... Friends, great great things happen. It builds unity in the church. It builds love and camaraderie among the saints. Being hospitable is critical to your development as a believer. When's the last time you had somebody over? I'll ask you very plainly. When's the last time you had someone over to your home? When's the last time you cooked for them and cared for them in your home? I would like an invitation. If if you're feeling guilty, you can invite me over. I would love to eat dinner with you. My wife's a great cook, though, so I'm content to stay at home as well. Tom right there. Tom wants to be, he wants to go over and he'll, he'll embrace your hospitality. So, you know, a good bachelor seminary student over there. If you, if you need somebody to bring on by, bring Tom by. And friends, hey, without grumbling, Peter says, I know, I know what it's like. You, you, do it, you do it by the letter of the law. Okay, I'm hospitable. I had somebody over. I, I checked it off the list, Lord. No, no, no. Without grumbling. 
without murmuring, without complaining. That's the nature in which we are to show hospitality. Verse 10, here we get to another interesting subject. Peter's going to start talking about spiritual gifts here a little bit. Verse 10, he says, As each one has received a gift, or charisma in Greek, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter here is turning to the topic of spiritual gifts, charisma. While sensible thinking, sober-minded prayer, fervent love, and hospitality are things that all of us are to embrace in our Christian life and to exhibit in our day-to-day lives, Peter says you've been given particularly a kind of gift. A kind of gift that comes by means of the Holy Spirit of God by which you build up the church body. Peter doesn't have a long list of spiritual gifts like you might find by the Apostle Paul. If you want to look at longer lists, you've got to turn to first, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, or Ephesians 4. Because in 1 Peter 4, there's only two gifts that Peter's going to speak of, and he's speaking of it in a very general fashion. The list, you might say, is overly simplified, but nevertheless, he's going to break it down into two categories. One, speaking gifts, and two, serving gifts. Whatever gift you have, Peter says, and you who are believers do have a gift, minister it to one another. Why? Because you're a steward. You're an administrator of the manifold grace of God. You are a manager, if you will, of the multifaceted grace of God. You've been given a special portion of that grace, that charisma, and you are to put it to work in building up the community of the church. Now remember, Peter says there are two kinds of gifts. Take a look at verse 11. He says this regarding the two kinds of general gifts that he's using broad categories for under which we could list a number of spiritual gifts from some other passages. But he says this, if anyone speaks, one of, the, one of the kinds of gifts, one of the categories, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, another kind of the categories or service gifts, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Now Peter's mentioned a lot about speaking. Let's deal with speaking at the start there. Peter, if, you, if you've been aware of this study in 1 Peter over the last number of months, you will recall Peter using the word speak or speaking many, many times, always in reference, by and large, to the evil speaking of the culture around them. The Christians in Asia Minor were receiving persecution, reviling threats against them. And Peter referred to this again and again as evil speaking of the Gentiles. By contrast, Peter says, in direct contrast to that kind of speech, those of you who are gifted with speaking gifts in the church are to speak the oracles of God. Now what are the oracles of God? That term oracle there, it's the Greek word logia. The Greek word logia. And it's found three other instances in the New Testament in particular. You'll find it in Acts 7.38, Romans 3.2, and Hebrews 5.12. Without turning to those texts, you're welcome to do so on your own. I want to say, in general, 
All of these references, in all of these instances of that term oracle, or utterance in some of your Bible translations, the Greek word logia is understood to mean God's teaching or revelation. God's teaching or revelation. And so, Peter rightly says that if you've been gifted with a speaking gift, be sure to convey God's teaching. Reveal the truth of God with what you say. Pastors, elders, preachers, teachers, leaders. These are the kinds of people who have been given gifts of speech, if you will, by God. And Peter says very clearly, when you speak, speak God's truth. When you speak, speak God's oracles, God's sayings, God's teachings. It's God's truth that you speakers have been entrusted with. Remember who is the source of your speech. That is why in James 3.1, James indicates, hey, be careful if you're going to be a speaker. Be careful if you're going to be a teacher because you will incur a stricter judgment by God on the last day. James is not warning us about our eternal destiny in James 3.1. He's warning us about the fact that those who have been entrusted with speaking gifts need to be especially mindful of what they say because if they're not speaking God's truth, they will incur a stricter judgment. They will incur a stricter judgment. If you have a speaking gift, speak God's truth, Peter says. On the other hand, if you have a serving gift, if you're a minister, by that he means to serve or to care for someone. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. As those with speaking gifts are to remember who is the source of the truth they declare, those with serving gifts are to be mindful of who is the one who supplies them with the very strength to carry out their duties. Friends, in both of these instances, to those who speak and to those who serve, God is the source, Peter says. God is the source, both of what the speaker says and how the servant serves. The fact that God is the source of all spiritual gifts should be a clear and vivid reminder for us to avoid pride or jealousy. When we speak or serve well, we should not credit ourselves, but rather show gratitude to God, the source of our giftedness. And neither should we be jealous of one member's gift over another because God is the giver of gifts to begin with. Now Peter's going to finish this section of Scripture by indicating what will happen when we utilize these gifts in the manner that God intends for us to do. Take a look at the end of verse 11. He says that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, not only are spiritual gifts meant to build up the body, for bodybuilding, if you will, but when done properly, when the speakers speak God's truth, when the servants serve with the strength that God provides, when both recognize God's the source, He's the one giving us this privilege, this opportunity, this responsibility. When that happens, 
When we do it well as God intends, not only does it build up the church, but it brings glory to God and to Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, a final thought. I I wanted to leave us with this as we leave this passage today. This has been a simple simple study today. There's nothing mind-boggling here. But I want us to be reminded of what it said in verse 8. Above all things, have fervent, agape love. How do we build up the church, friends? How do we body-build the church? I would argue that agape love is critical. Critical. It is not enough for me to love you with a phileo love. It is not enough for me to love you with a phileo love. It is not enough for you to love me with a phileo kind of love. We need to go beyond that, friends. Agape love is critical. When we intercede for each other in prayer, practice hospitality, and use our gifts as God intends, we are strengthened and God is glorified. And all of that is done in the context of agape love. Sacrificial kind of love. Recognizing who is the source of our gifts and recognizing how important it is that we show sacrificial love toward one another. In so doing, friends, we will build up this church and we will glorify God. I urge you to consider how you might show agape love today to your spouse, to your church family, to those that you work with on a day-to-day basis. Don't be content to love them with a brotherly love. Show them that sacrificial love that God intends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, Your Word is so good. Father, by it we learn so much of what it means to become more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, today's text, as we've been going through 1 Peter, today's Scripture was, was not a difficult one to understand, Lord. It was rather simplistic. And yet, Father, in it, I, I know in my own life I've recognized some of my deficiencies as I attempt to measure up to these qualities that are to be in me if I'm to build up this church. Father, I know that all of us can look at this list of, of Christian characteristics and identify one or two that, that we might be able to improve on. God, You are the source Your Spirit within us is the one who can affect change in our lives. And I pray, Father, that as we've heard Your Word, that Your Spirit now would begin to work on our hearts and help us to become more like the qualities and characteristics listed in our our text today. Father, may this church be built up. May this church body be strengthened. May we consider what we can do, what part we can play to make it great, to make it glorifying to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.